Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, issue 13, Men of Good Fortune. I'm joined by two undying co-hosts, Ashley. Hail and well met. And Sean. What up? On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown where we let you know who created the issue, and then the catch-up, to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue, and then we follow up that with the deep dive, when we really get into everything that happened. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and our favorite non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through, so let's get Sandy. Sean, over to you for the rundown. All right, running it down. So issue 13 here was released January 2nd, 1990, with our beloved writer, Neil Gaiman, special penciler, Michael Zuli, inks by Steve Parkhouse, this issue, colors, Robbie Bush in the original, and Xylenol Studios in newer editions, letter, the ever-loving Todd Klein, Associate Editor Art Young, and Editor Karen Berger. Ashley, you want to take us to the catch-up? I would be delighted. Uh, so in our last issue, we've reclaimed Brute and Glob. They have been banished to some spacey outer darkness. Lyta Hall loses Hector, and Morpheus, much like Rumpelstiltskin, claims her firstborn dream baby. And then we leave Morpheus having acted as monstrously as his latest quarry, his nightmare, the Corinthian, who has taken poor, hapless Jed, who can't seem to catch a break, and is headed out for the great, murderous, unknown. <laughs> <sighs> ben, what's the breakdown? Thanks, Ashley. So first, I just want to give a hat tip to DC Fandom. There was a lot going on, so I am using their synopsis for a bit of guidance. So we start off in the year 1389, and we have Dream, and we have Death, and this is a continuation from uh, an earlier idea where Death is, you know, trying to get Dream to really understand humans uh, in their waking lives and kind of see that part of part of their existence. In this pub is a man named Robert Gadling who goes by Hob. And he explains that essentially only chumps die. And there's really no reason to die if you don't want to die. And it just so happens that he does that. And Dream and Death hear this. And they decide to let him remain alive until he really no longer wants to live. But Dream throws the gauntlet down in front of Hob and his friend saying, If you really can't die, then meet me here in a hundred years. Hobb's friends, of course, all laugh at this, but Hobb, bound and determined to prove them right, says that he will be there in 100 years. And wouldn't you know, 100 years goes by, Dream returns to the pub, and there's Hobb. 
So the two of them now start this long running meeting every hundred year episode. So 200 years later, we find Hob and he is a successful merchant or businessman of some time. He is very excited. He has a wife. Uh, they have a, uh, a son together and he just thinks that life is full of riches. It is also during this engagement that Dream bumps into William Shakespeare in Kit Marlowe. Dream overhears William Shakespeare saying that he would give up his mortal soul to be able to write plays that live on in memory forever. So Dream decides to make Shakespeare an offer that we will learn about much later as we go through this comic. We're now in 1689, and things have gone very poorly for Hob. His wife ended up dying during childbirth, and his son died in a bar fight at the age of 20. He also stayed around in one area for too long, and they tried to burn him because they thought, well, I mean, he is kind of a witch, but they burned him like a <laughs> witch. <laughs> and this is the first time he admits that the last 80 years were absolutely terrible. And this is the first opportunity that Dream really ponders if Hob is going to decide to die. But Hob smiles and decides that he'll just go on. We're now in the 17, the late 1700s, and Hob is now a slave trader. This is where we get introduced to a new character who will become uh, important throughout the uh, comic book, Joanna Constantine, uh, related potentially to John Constantine. And she tries to essentially kidnap them because she thinks that they have special powers, which once again, they do. Dream is able to work his way out of this using some sleep magic, and they end up leaving her. But as they depart, Dream does tell Hob that he should probably not continue in the slave trade. In our penultimate meeting, it's 1889, and we see that Hob and Dream are really starting to form more of a close-knit bond here uh, throughout the years. We're also introduced to Mad Hetty here, which is someone who we would have uh, that we'll see later on uh, in the comic. And lastly, we are in the uh, 1900s, and the last thing we see is an awesome-looking dream, in my opinion, come in and see his friend Hob dressed up like a coked-out 80s uh, Wall Street tycoon. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That was quite a bit. Why don't we take just a moment to grab a beer with Hobbs, and we'll come right back. So now we're on to the deep dive where we'll be bouncing back and forth between our excellent co-hosts here. So Sean, why don't we start with you? There's a lot going on. As we just heard in the breakdown, we moved from the 1300s all the way to the 1900s, jumps in time. We kind of see a little Forrest Gumpy thing going on here where Dream seems to be bumping into people just at like the most opportune time. So what's the first thing you wanted to pull out of here and talk about? 
Okay, well today I'm gonna do my deep dive a little different. It's gonna be more like a shallow dive, sort of skipping a rock across the surface because there's so much to talk about. And so I wanted to kind of cover as much as I possibly could. So instead of going real deep on one thing, I'll talk about several things and hopefully uh, all of that will come together to give us a fuller picture of the issue. Continuous improvement. We're all about it around here. Little Kaizen, <laughs> amazing. There we go. And you know, there's it's a it's a big issue. This is probably our I would say like our third like certified classic, like four star, five mics mm-hmm. in the source kind of issue, you know, along with uh Hope and Hell and Sound of Her Wings, you know. These are just like yeah. landmark comic issues here. So I want to start off with talking a little bit about this kind of odd comic story that's shoved into the middle of the overarching uh, dollhouse storyline, you know? Because if you're a first-time reader approaching this, you know, the first thing you're noticing is probably how disconnected from the overall plot of the story arc this particular issue is. And really, the only connection, the only connection really is uh, in issue 12, Dream kind of excuses himself from that awkward conversation with Lyda about her dead husband and dream baby <laughs> by saying, I have a prior engagement, I'm afraid. I can oh! discuss this no further. And he bounces. Oh, okay. Yeah. And at the end of that issue, uh, so Neil had requested that a blurb appear that says, next, the prior engagement, implying that now we're going to find out what his prior engagement was. Okay. So that that appears like it's supposed to in the edition I have, and I think the edition Ashley has, probably the one most people will be reading. But in the initial release, someone at DC made a mistake and decided that the blurb was incorrect, probably because it has nothing to do like with the title of the next issue. So they just decided to remove it. No. So, oh, yeah. I don't have it in my copy. You don't have it. I'm looking so at it. Do you have like a blank box there? Oh, yeah. There's yeah. a little blank box right there. There's a blank <laughs> yeah. box. So that's supposed to say next, the prior engagement. <laughs> that would help so much. I know. I know. You know, even though this issue has kind of interrupted the plot we've been following so far with the missing nightmares and uh, Rose the Dream Vortex and Jed and so on. It's worth noting that this issue is actually located at the very center of the Doll's House storyline. Three issues preceding it, three issues following, and, you know, not including the, the prelude. Um, and this makes sense if we keep in mind uh, those figures we've been talking about that serve as the thematic foundations of the narrative, right? I've been talking about Dolls, um, through which we explore these issues of control, freedom, domination, fate, self-determination, etc., and uh, houses, which provides insight on intimacy, isolation, connection, fantasy, reality. These ideas are all very much present in this issue, and they find their pinnacle, really, in the, in the climax of the story in Hobbes' challenge to dream, where he accuses Morpheus of not being the kind of distant, objective observer of human nature, sort of performing an experiment, right? Like, what happens when a man doesn't die? But instead, you know, being lonely and wanting a friend. And so here we see a real um, overturning for the first time of the relationship between mortals and the endless. And when Dream rises to the challenge, when he finally shows up in 1989... 
um, presumably after like stopping home to change out of his like fire robes and helm <laughs> that he was wearing previously. <laughs> um, it marks the breakdown of those walls we've been talking about. Dream accepts Hob as a friend. Um, he takes a step out of his sort of very confined world and towards uh, intimacy. So that to me is the connection to the overall Dow's House storyline. But let's go back and talk about some other things, starting with the title, Men of Good Fortune, right? I think there's a couple possible inspirations for the title of this issue, and I haven't come across any firm answers or anything um, as to what like Neil was thinking when he was titling it, but I have some speculations. My first one is that the title refers to the common uh, medieval allegory of fortune as a wheel that brings both happiness and sorrow in turn. So this is a concept that was adapted from classical antiquity, uh, most notably the Roman philosopher Boethius, forgive me, uh, ancient Romans if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, who brought the, the Greek idea of a blind and mechanically turning fate to a Western Christian audience in like the 6th century AD. Um, and in his Consolation of Philosophy, as the title of the work, he writes, I'm going to read a little bit from this here. He says, I think that ill fortune is of, a gr is of greater advantage to men than good fortune. Good fortune is ever lying when she seems to favor by an appearance of happiness. Ill fortune is ever true when by her changes she shows herself inconstant. The one deceives, the other edifies. The one by a deceitful appearance of good things enchains the minds of those who enjoy them. The other frees them by a knowledge that happiness is so fragile. You see then that the one is blown about by winds, is ever moving and ever ignorant of its own self. The other is sober, ever prepared, and ever made provident by the undergoing of its adversities. Lastly, good fortune draws men from the straight path of true good by her fawning. Ill fortune draws most men to the true good and holds them back by her curved staff. It also actually shows up in the work of Geoffrey Chaucer, who we meet briefly in this issue, um, in The Monk's Tale from Canterbury Tales. Little line from there, adapted from Middle English to like modern English. So I'm not, I, I've tried to read Middle English aloud before. It's, it it's sounds hard. embarrassing, so yeah. I'm not going to here. But he says, For no crime save thy high chivalry, all in bed they slew thee on a morrow, and thus does fortune's wheel turn treacherously, and out of happiness bring men to sorrow. Oh, and a little side note there. It was actually like pretty hotly debated at the time what the proper form of English language verse was, and Neil kind of calls that out in in this issue uh, when he's having that little argument with his friend Edmund, and he's like, you know, nobody wants to read all this stuff in rhyme, right? <laughs> well, that's like, I mean, that was true, and you know, at the time, this is a, a digression. Forgive me, but at the time, so you're already on a tangent, and now you're I'm digressing. already on no, a tangent, I, but you're but you're digressing go. off I, of a tangent. I am eating this. Just, up. I wanted to make sure. Yeah, my job is just make sure the the the, the listeners know where we are. We're on mm -hmm. a tangent, and now we're diverging from a tangent. Go. Yes, from men of good fortune. Ben's our cartographer for the. Yeah. <laughs> to a little bit about Chaucer, right? So so like the oldest forms of uh, English language verse in. In Old English and Middle English, etc., uh, were alliterative poetry. So they'd be like sounds, uh, words that start with the same sound. 
And there'd started to be more rhyme in verse around this time, but rhyme was associated more with, uh, with France and with French poetry. And because this is such a time of conflict with France, it was almost like sort of more patriotic to do the alliterative poetry than it was rhyme. But Chaucer was like, nah, I just like rhyming. <laughs> okay, end of tangent. So let's go back to concept of fortune. So the inevitability of fortune and suffering kind of acted as a reminder of the temporal nature of earthly things. And in religious instruction, you know, contrast the world of man with what is sort of eternal and everlasting. Um, and if Neil was thinking about this, it becomes a bit ironic, of course, because our story deals with the fortunes of immortal beings who are not bound by our concept of temporality. So it becomes a clever title utilizing a concept um, that would have been known to people in the time period he's writing about. Mm. That is one possibility. The other option is a rock and roll song. <laughs> and it's Neil Gaiman. It could have come from either of those or both, right? Yeah. So Men of Good Fortune is also the title of a song uh, by Lou Reed on his 1973 album Berlin. And even though it's considered a classic now, it was widely loathed upon its release. And really? it is a, yeah, it was, it's a, have you heard it? Yeah, but like I wouldn't have thought that it would have been hated. But again, I'm coming from the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was hated just, be, it, it's a, it's a like ugly album, like thematically. It's a brutal album mm -hmm. <clears throat> about a relationship gone wrong. And the title is entirely metaphorical, right? Like Reed had never been to Berlin, Germany. He just liked the idea of a divided city as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And the story told within the album is about a doomed couple, um, an abusive man and a woman who ends up taking her own life. And it's filled, as one reviewer notes, with jealousy, passion, indifference, hypocrisy, uh, fragility, and all throughout... Reed describes this relationship with this like cold and clinical detachment, right? It seems almost cruel in its emotional distance from the horrible events it describes. And so I kind of have to wonder if Gaiman was thinking about any parallels between that album and mm. the relationship between Dream and Nada uh, from that. the very beginning of this. Yeah. Mm. I mean, maybe a bit of a stretch, but it's interesting to me. Um, the song Men of Good Fortune itself is a bit of an outlier. It's this like really cynical interpretation of history as driven by sort of privileged uh, inheritors of wealth without imagination or compassion or ability. And then the men of poor beginnings, uh, Reed mentions men of poor beginnings, who are driven to despair and inaction by the constraints of their circumstances. Apart from them, uh, the cool and detached speaker in the song, he kind of watches and describes the world, but declines to act, seeing it as just human nature. Um, in the song, he says, Men of good fortune often cause empires to fall, while men of poor beginnings often can't do anything at all. The rich son waits for his father to die, the poor just drink and cry, and me, I just don't care at all. So... While I don't think Hobgaddling or Dream really share the song's perspective, um, I think the point about a consistent human nature, despite changing circumstances, may stand. Okay, so I don't know which or whether these inspired Neil's title, 
But the penciler, Michael Zuli, who was pretty in demand at the time, actually decided to take the project because he was a big Lou Reed fan. Um, so, you know, we know what side he comes down on. Speaking of Michael Zuli, I'm going to do this last one and I'll take a break and we can come back to me because I got more. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to need a breath after this. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about Michael Zuli because this is one of, I think, two issues in the entire... No, he does more issues, but this is like the, he does, um, he comes in at sort of two separate times in the overall story of the Sandman. This is the first one. Um, he's a, he's a wonderful, very detailed artist, a really refined penciler who previous to this had worked on this really trippy, psychedelic, um, mutant animal book called Puma Blues. Um, <laughs> He's been going for decades, honestly. He's, like, just finished the whole thing recently. But while most writers started seeking Zuli out for his animal work, Neil Gaiman spotted his detailed environments and chose him for this issue. And I really can't think of another comic in the history of the medium, at least, like, in the U.S., where, uh, you know, attention to background environment is as important as this one for sort of transporting the readers through the ages, right? So... I want to share a little detail of Zuli um, talking about his work that I really liked. So this is a quote from him. I just think it, it, it gives a great insight on, um, you know, how he approaches his art and the role pencilers play. He says, unlike a movie director, I don't have the ability to physically gather all the elements of a scene and then simply film them. Instead, I have to remember how people tend to arrange themselves in a room, what furniture is likely to be there, where the light should be coming from, and so on. Mm. Then combine those elements in a way that triggers a memory of reality in the reader's mind. I like that, a memory of reality. Yeah. He says, comics are often compared to film, but I see them as being much more like theater, another medium that can't physically show everything and so must rely on suggestion supported by a few perfectly chosen details. I try to render characters and their environments with enough fidelity to maintain the illusion of reality and avoid having my audience want to throw tomatoes at me. <laughs> I love that quote. Isn't that great? That is That's great. really good. I think it is, you know, a lovely description of his approach to his work. Ultimately though, I'll just throw in a little bit of a, a little little commentary. I do think that his pencils in this issue were hindered a bit by Steve Parkhouse's inks, honestly. Parkhouse is an important figure in comics history. He's worked on a lot of significant series, especially in the UK, 2000 AD, Warrior Magazine. He worked on Grant Morrison's Invisibles, which I think a lot of readers of The Sandman would also be mm. familiar with The Invisibles. If you're not, check it out. Um, here, however, I think, you know, Parkhouse was a little heavy-handed with the ink brush, and the result is that it doesn't let Zuli's details shine as much as they could have. Um, mm. And for a counterexample, check out the final story arc in the entire Sandman series, The Wake, uh, which was penciled by Zuli and mm. left totally without inks. So it's an uninked, you know, The Wake is, for the most part, except for the final issue, totally uninked. And the mm. soft pencil lines, they really allow his style to shine. So I encourage you to check out that to see, like, the full Michael Zuli glory. 
And with that, I'm going to uh, stop skipping the rocks for a minute and uh, we can come back for the rest of my stuff. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Sean. So Ashley, I think the first thing you wanted to talk about is actually referenced right there in the uh, opening splash page here where we see a gentleman in the bottom right saying, war plague and two bloody popes fighting like weasels in heat. The end of the world <laughs> is soon. You mark me. So you're going to talk to us a bit about the great Occidental schism of 1378. I am. This This issue was like a candy dish of all of my favorite mm. candies. And I just didn't know what to pick because <laughs> there were so many cool little bits that I wanted to discuss. So I really tried to, to, to pare it down for y'all and not, not overwhelm. I didn't want you drinking from a fire hose, but uh, this I'll handle the overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to be like a backyard hose. That's like more fun and, you know, may give you lead poisoning. Who's to say? But you'll survive <laughs> it for most of the time. Um, so Sean will overwhelm, you will whelm, and I will underwhelm. There you go. Got it. We're good. <laughs> just keep a nice balance going. Yeah, just just whelm it. You know, real mother maiden crone energy over here. <laughs> yeah. You know, no one ever talks about whelming. You know what I mean? <laughs> People true. are always talking about overwhelm and underwhelm. But like, what about just whelming? That's my goal. I wanna I wanna be a whelmer. That's my. Mm-hmm. 2023 resolution. Be a Wilmer. I think that's an honorable goal. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Hob. Hob, Hob is not really okay, so, uh, that's I'm true. going on another tangent here. But no, because, this is true, like, he's a Wilmer. He's, he's a Wilmer. Yeah, he's 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 doing cool stuff, but he's not like like I was just, you know, as we were getting started, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, why did Hob never like start some sort of deathless cult or something like mm, that. Mm. Like, why not rise to the true heights of power, you know? But he doesn't. He just wants to enjoy stuff and hang out. Yeah. yeah. He's not that ambitious, and he's not that smart, to be honest. Yeah. He just yeah. wants to unlike, buy. Unlike the two popes that you're going to tell us about. Right, <laughs> exactly. So, um, the Great Occidental Schism, also known as the Western Schism, also known as the Papal Schism, the Vatican Standoff, or the Great Occidental Schism, um, of 1378 was a split with the Catholic Church lasting for 39 years. Uh, this schism, while sometimes referred to as the Great Schism, to note, should not be confused with the other Great Schism, usually in reference <laughs> for the East-West Schism of 1054 between the churches remaining in communion with the See of Rome and the Eastern Orthodox Churches. So that's when we get the split between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. And it's easy because <laughs> churches have had so many schisms to get them confused. So I just wanted to specify, we are not talking about the split between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. We are talking about the split between two different locations of um, the Vatican. So the papacy had resided in Avignon since 1309, so France, as it was had close associations which, with the French monarchy. However, it developed a reputation for corruption, shocker, largely involving its goals to increase its revenue, which alienated it from the rest of Western Christendom at the time. Uh, at the time then, Pope Gregory XI returned to Rome in 1377 only to announce his intention to return to Avignon the next year at the encouragement of all of his friends and family. He then died in the Vatican Palace before doing so. Therein lies the kickoff to our conflict because he was in France near the royal family 
was able to advise, was ruling there, comes back to the Vatican in Rome, and then uh, promptly dies before being able to return as he had been advised to do so. So this gave Romans the opportunity to keep the papacy in Rome after it being in Avignon for over 70 years. Big deal. So less than a month after Gregory's death, they then quickly elected Pope Urban VI. Urban had been a respected administrator at the time and archbishop, but once Pope, he revealed himself, again, shocker, to be suspicious, temperamental, and reformist. So most of the cardinals that, the, that had a hand in electing him immediately regretted it and left Rome. And then the College of Cardinals, which is like all of the cardinals of the church getting together to make big decisions and elections, etc., organized in Fondi. So this is halfway between Rome and Naples uh, in September. So only five months after Urban was elected and then elected Pope Clement VII. So those cardinals who elected Urban were like, oh, we've made a mistake. Leave, but only go so far and elect a different pope to try to make up for their mistake, arguing that Urban's election was actually made under duress, fearing Roman riots, and was thus invalid. So, unable to stay in Italy, Clement VII reinstated himself in Avignon in France. So you've got Pope Urban in Rome, and then you've got Clement in Avignon. And so now you've got two popes, and both locations have had a pope before functioning. And so now you've got two seats of power in the Catholic Church, both uncertain of their validity because the cardinals are split. So this, understandably, threw the church into chaos and Western Europe. So throughout history, there are antipopes, and antipopes are claimants to the papacy against the elected pope. So this is like somebody who claims that they are meant to be pope or should be pope or someone else should be pope, um, but there has already been an elected pope. But those generally come from outside um, rival factions, not within the church itself. It's usually another group looking in as opposed to within the church. In this case, the College of Cardinals managed to elect the pope and the anti-pope. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. So that's why this... Like, you have one job. It, you have one job. I like exactly. one pope. And it's so funny, because, like, like, when you do read all this history, and this is why I find this so funny and why I love that it's um, included here, is because you will just keep saying that to yourself the more you read. Is You had one job. How did you screw this up <laughs> so bad? Um, Two-thirds plus one, and then you live with the consequences. <laughs> like, let's go. It, it was weird just having... like it. it like it was weird just having two popes alive, right? Like with uh, uh, Benedict and and um, the the current pope, right? Like yeah. that. Like people seem to be weirded out by that. So well, I can't imagine because people generally develop their allegiances and, like you know, understandably, people get attached to certain leadership or certain styles of leadership in any institution, church, government, what have you. So it doesn't matter. People will always be like, not my Pope. Um, and it's just a thing. So you will have, you like, you'll visit friends and family who might have, say, like you were saying, Pope Benedict up on their wall. And they're like, I'm not putting Pope Francis up. He's not my Pope. Calm down. You know, like if, if they really actually acknowledged the, not to get too deep in, in uh, ecclesiology, but if they actually got, into and understood their own ecclesiology, they would 
relax on that a bit. Regardless, that's not what I'm here to talk about, but it is like a consistent, you're right, it is a consistent pattern, um, and it has not really gone away. It's not been to this extent of uh, warring levels, but uh, we have we have yet to be even begin. This is just like the starting block. We have barely begun this race. So then, now that you have a pope and an anti-pope, the, qu- the conflict quickly escalated from a church problem to a diplomatic crisis that divided Europe. So Clement was eventually succeeded in Castile, Aragon, uh, Navarre, and a part of the Latin East, Flanders, Wales, and Scotland. Urban was popular in England, go figure, Ireland, which was under English rule, Poland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. Uh, that's not to suggest that these allegiances were unanimously felt, though. Uh, when the Belgian town of Bruges uh, chose obedience to uh, Clement in Avignon, a great number of people left Bruges to follow their trade in a city of urbanist allegiance. Hmm. I think that sounds relatively familiar. Uh, and I, you know, the more people change, the more they stay the same. So then the schism continued well after the deaths of both Pope Urban VI in 1389 and Clement VII in 1394. Boniface IX took the place of Urban and Benedict XIII took the place of Clement VII and both maintained the rivalry. So neither of them were giving up this fight. They're just like, yeah, we'll just take up these mantles. So when Pope Boniface died in 1404, the eight cardinals of the Roman conclave offered to refrain from electing a new pope if Benedict, so the one in Avignon, would resign. However, Benedict's representatives refused on his behalf, so nice of them, so the Roman party proceeded <laughs> to elect Pope Innocent VII. The French crown even tried to coerce Benedict, whom it supported, into resigning. So they're like, let's please like, just cut our losses. <laughs> just stop. Uh, and they couldn't. This did not work. You might think, shouldn't a church, church council resolve the schism since they made the mess themselves? Well, canon law required that a pope call the council, and neither of these popes would do so. <laughs> so they were just continuing. And eventually, both from both the cardinals from both sides managed an agreement that Pope Gregory the Twelfth, following Innocent the Seventh, and Avignon Pope Benedict the Thirteenth would meet in Savona. When both leaders balked at the last minute, so they didn't show up, both sets of cardinals gave up on these leaders, and a council in Pisa met, tried to depose both popes under the argument that they were schismatical, heretical, perjured, and ultimately scandalous. However, instead of being able to solve this problem, they ended up adding to this problem by electing a third pope, Alexander V. He led led for a year and then was succeeded by John XXIII. It is now 1410. So we started in 1378. We now have three popes as of 1410. One in Avignon, one in Rome, one in Pisa. And they're all going at it, and they all have their own successors. The schism was finally resolved when John the Twenty-Third called the Council of Constance. 
They met for four years. The council arranged the renunciation of the Pope, of both the Roman Pope, Gregory XII, which he supported. So John XXIII supported Gregory XII. And then the Pisan antipope, John XXIII, excommunicated the Avignon antipope, Benedict XIII, and then elected Martin V, new guy, as a new pope reigning from Rome. So finally, after all of these like resolutions and um, excommunicating various antipopes and such, the schism resolved itself. As a fun fact, this was the last papal election to take place outside of Italy. All papal elections have now since happened in Italy, in Rome. And that is the Great Occidental Schism of 1378. So it, it was a dramatic time of great intrigue and division. So you can understand why they'd be talking about it at their local tavern. And I find it to be just kind of a, a funny, very dynamic um, historical reference. Because then when you go back to the end of the issue, when they are uh, talking about Thatcher and uh, the labor movement and then the AIDS crisis, um, it's all kind of like parallel uh, as far as mm-hmm. uh, the concerns by each. And I think it's easy to read about early English history and go, well, I can't relate to any of that. Like, I don't understand why it would have been such a big deal, you know, to care about who was Pope or to care about um, who was in power in the church. You know, they would just go, they were so mindless. Like you, you hear this in history classes and such, but if you think about it as religion really funneled and fueled and informed the politics of the time. And now Mm -hmm we have the inverse where politics generally inform how people respond to their own religion. So it's just a cycle. So like Mm -hmm. I said, the more people change, the more they stay the same. And I love that we have that sort of bookended balance within this issue because you have people talking about current day politics and current day religion and their um, interpretations of each uh, (laughs) to greater or lesser authority, but still, um, it's the, it's the stuff people are talking about and concerned about, and it, you know, affected people in this time just as much as it affects us now. Well, and, you know, one of the crazy things is that the Protestant Reformation is going to happen less than a century later. <laughs> yeah. And, like, they're doing all this stuff over here with anti-popes and anti-anti-popes and penultimate popes, and it's just like, hey, in a hundred years, everything is going to be, like, you just have no idea how different the world is going to be in terms of religiosity in like this was this was bigger than anything else that is going to happen like in christendom is the reformation right right? it's like it's 100 years away like you're so close and you have no (laughs) idea it's coming for you it makes you think like when we're here today and it's like what don't we know that's 100 years away that is just going to change like people would be like how like that was coming up why like how did they not see something like that was like (laughs) bubbling up below the surface like it's crazy right no exactly that's a great point um but it just it shows you how you know, big these events were and how much they affect people in the moment. And I, I'd say that the more history I read, the more optimistic I actually do become because mm. you see how humanity survives. What are these like, again, at the, at, for the time, these huge implosions uh, within politics and culture 
Um, and as they're saying, you know, in the comic, you know, they're talking about like, how are we going to survive it? You know, it's going to be the, the end of the world as we know it. This is this, you know, the plague is going to kill us all and we're not going to be able to move forward. And like they they have dark humor about it you, in a couple pages. When Hobbes says that, you know, he's not going to die, the two guys are like, oh, yeah, and I'm Pope Urban, and oh, I'm Pope Clement. Like, they, they find mm-hmm. humor in it, just like we do now. Um, right. And and so, yeah, I just this is just a pitch for you all to read more history, I guess. Well, yeah, because I think you can get caught up on some of the sillier things, like you said. Right. You know, I was reading about the Great Schism, so the one that split the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church mm-hmm. in half. And, like, one of the big things was, like, do you use unleavened or leavened bread yeah. during communion? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, that may seem so silly, and at some level it is, but it was so important at that time because of what it meant to use those things and everything that was, like, tied into it. Right. And that's where I feel like the power comes from is, like, when you know that, you're, like, oh, wow, that's, like, you know, that that's why it's important. So Right. No, exactly. Um, and I won't I won't get into a whole <laughs> tirade about leavened and unleavened bread and, and Eucharist. But I mean, just to, to go off of, you know, we are constantly episode by episode analyzing a piece of art. Symbols hold great weight for all of us. Um, that's mm-hmm. not going to be any different in any form of religion that anybody practices. And so, you know, right. when I, I would say for everybody who is unfamiliar with the um, figures that they're discussing in this issue, um, how they're discussing them and how they're affect they're being depicted as affecting their lives. Um, think of any other sort of symbolic reference or anything else you hold dear, any sort of material object that you're really bonded with, say a drumstick from a concert, what have you. Um, we all have our own symbols and objects that we, we give, you know, great importance to. Um, so it's it's always good to be gentle with humanity, I think. Well, well just real quick while we're on that subject, and I, this isn't a, a piece I prepared or anything, but um, reading this issue did get me started reading a little bit about the Peasants' Revolt in yeah. England, which is discussed at the beginning of this issue when they mention uh, the poll taxes, which is a, a, a – which is – not like a poll tax in the U.S. where we're recording, um, which is done to vote, you know, but a, uh, essentially a head tax on every person in England. And so, you know, that coupled with um, a ton of restrictions put on uh, the serf and sort of peasant class in terms of like where they could move, what they could do for a living, how much they could be paid for, for their labor – all of that yeah. sort of came to a head in the mm. Peasants' Revolt, led by uh, um, John Ball, inspired by John Ball, and led by Watt Tyler. It's a really interesting story. I mean, they 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 chased the King of England into the Tower of London and got him yeah. to agree to all these sort of concessions. Um, they 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 you know successfully attacked London, and in the end. They were, you know, kind of uh, betrayed by Richard II's promise, and he kind of turned his back on that, and 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 ended up just sort of killing everybody. But uh, a really foundational moment in the history of radical egalitarianism in oh. England, and a very cool thing to read about. I'd encourage everyone to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's what's so great about reading any form of history is. I think a lot of times in media 
peasants are frequently depicted as being kind of like stupid. They can't read. They're, you know, mm. not like as in the know, but they were, they were wildly invested in what was happening in the world. I mean, again, even it was, I hadn't realized this until I had, you know, prepared for this episode, but all of those townspeople moving from Bruges just because they didn't like who the, po- which Pope was being supported. And like, you think now, oh yeah, just pack up a U-Haul and leave if I don't like a place, if I'm, you know, I'm, you know, the blueberry and the tomato soup. But in that case, like it takes, <laughs> have you not heard that phrase before? Wait, excuse me? No. What? <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. We need to take a diversion from this tangent. Uh, please. <laughs> This is a second level tangent now. Please, Ashley. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So, <laughs> blueberry and tomato soup, like being the lone Democrat in a sea of red. Oh, soup. sure. Yeah, that's what uh, I. I've mean just never that. heard of it though. Oh well, there, the more you know. That's a. The more you know. <laughs> the more you know. Um, but all I'm saying is, you know, at that time, it would have been, it would have come at a great cost for them to make that decision and then move and pick up shop and move trades, whereas you know a lot of us are working remotely. So, you know, how much <laughs> does it really, so it's just, it's, it's interesting to consider those things and to see mm-hmm. what cost and what consideration went into making those life changing decisions because of who you supported or believed was called by God to serve as Pope. It's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. And even, uh, even uh, Karl Marx discounted the political, you know, uh, agency of the peasant class or the lumpen proletariat. They were not where revolution was going to come from. It was Mm going to come from, um, you know, like, uh, skilled laborers and tradesmen and things like that. But as you're saying, yeah, the, you know, even the quote unquote lowest among society have, have beliefs and opinions and have agency to produce change. Yep. You're here. Exactly. Power to the people. Well, thanks Ashley for all of that. Not even just the two popes. We got we got a third surprise pope. We didn't even we weren't ready for it. In the notes to me, it just said two popes. Interbang. That's what it said. I didn't know there was a third coming. You, you get another little pope as a treat. <laughs> uh, Sean, you said to come back to you because you had a few more things. So please, what are your few more things? Okay, got a couple more here. Yes. First of all, we can't get through this episode without. Talking about my boy, Will Shaxbird, right? What, <laughs> um, <laughs> how, which is how he's referred to at least once in the in the issue here. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Shakespeare's inclusion. It's it came about apparently uh, very circuitously for Neil Gaiman because the idea for the story started with hobgadling you know that was the centerpiece of the story and you know it was 89 1989 when he started writing the issue and so he said it 600 years in the past and started looking up historical occurrences um in each of the years dream and hob would meet in the tavern and when he reached 1589 he saw that both christopher marlowe and shakespeare were active with um marlowe having just published faustus and shakespeare having only written, somewhat debatably, Henry VI. <laughs> and Neil Gaiman says, I sat down and read Henry VI, and it was awful. <laughs> while I was reading it... <laughs> 
while I was reading it, I got a vision of Shakespeare being sort of like I was early on. That is, someone who desperately wants to be a good writer more than anything else in the world. And mm. that interested me. He says that if it were just a few years later, like 1594, you know, Shakespeare would have been at the height of his powers and he wouldn't have been bothered including him in the pub. But since it was 89 and uh, he did, he wrote the scene with Dream offering to grant Will's wish. And as soon as he did that, he knew what Dream would request in return. Um, two plays, which we'll explore in detail later on in the series. But in this scene, it just interested Gaiman to see William Shakespeare as like a fanboy wannabe, as he puts it. Um, and one more little detail there, the line where Hobb kind of pithily describes Shakespeare as someone who, quote, acts a bit, wrote a play, uh, <laughs> was inspired by an infamous early critique of Fred Astaire that went, can't act, slightly bald, can dance a little. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why that, that's why a Hobbes description of Shakespeare was in there. Nice. Um, but of course, since Neil Gaiman is Neil Gaiman, he can't resist adding in all sorts of clever little details, right? Um, for example, you know, Shakespeare was a contemporary of Christopher Marlowe, who, like I said, was most famous for writing the tragical history of Dr. Faustus uh, about a mortal man who makes a deal with the devil for youth and knowledge. And Marlowe was a famous playwright in 1589, um, and the, you know, he sports a broken leg in the, in the story there. Um, he's got it in a splint. And his presence in a working-class pub, both of those things are very much in keeping with his character uh, or what we know about him. You know, he's been thought to be a, a brawler, a drunk, a spy, a counterfeiter, even a magician, um, some, of the, some of the rumors about him. It does seem pretty likely that he was a, a, a spy. Uh, but in 1589, the year of our meeting with him, he was involved in a fight between a poet and some of his neighbors, and he even spent a month in Blackgate Prison that year. <laughs> so, yeah, while there's no telling, like, who or what gave Marlowe his broken leg in the story, um, a mysterious injury and a violent year are certainly in keeping with this legend. Um, okay, then, of course, we have the spelling of Shakespeare's name as Shakespeare. Uh, just a little nod to the fact that Shakespeare himself used multiple kind of permutations of his name throughout his lifetime. And then uh, there's also the sort of fortuitous timing in having Dream and Shakespeare meet during Shakespeare's so-called lost years. Um, this, this largely undocumented period of time between... 1585, when we know that Shakespeare's twin children, uh, Hamnet and Judith, were baptized, and his emergence as a famed playwright in London in 1592. So there's all sorts of things we don't know about this intervening time. Why did he leave um, Stratford-upon-Avon? When did he start working in the theater? We don't know any of this stuff. So it marks a really lovely coincidence that Neil Gaiman was able to fill in a bit of this time in his story. And then finally, most cleverly, there's his manner of speech. <laughs> um, 
So you'll note that Shakespeare and Marlowe and Shakespeare and Dream all speak to each other with a kind of slightly unusually poetic rhythm, um, even going so far as to abbreviate a word like powers into powers, turning like two syllables into one. Um, clever readers might use that detail to pick up on the fact that even though like the dialogue and word balloons aren't lined metrically, these characters are actually speaking to each other in iambic pentameter, <laughs> the poetic meter of the favored form of Elizabethan poetry, blank verse. Um, so, you know, quick reminder for people who haven't taken an English class in a while, uh, iambic pentameter is so-called because each line in the poem um, consists of five meters of iams, iambic pentameter. Uh, an iam is a unit of two syllables, an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. So it kind of sounds like a heartbeat, like ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. And then when the lines of iambic pentameter are unrhymed, they're called blank verse. So Shakespeare utilized this verse form frequently, though not all the time in his plays. Um, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. That's iambic pentameter. You know, blank verse possesses something like a heightened, elevated, sort of refined rhythm, but it's still close enough to normal English speech that it doesn't sound unnatural. It just sounds more important. So Shakespeare frequently used it for like speeches, soliloquies, um, moments of intense introspection, or, you know, moments of import, you know? So if we as readers can recognize blank verse when we see it, and know how Shakespeare uses it in a way distinct from prose, uh, then we might guess that this meeting between Dream and Will Shakespeare is significant and will play an important role in future stories. Okay, there's one last detail I wanna dig in on, and that's good old Lushing Lou, right? Who Dream meets outside um, in 1889, and she kind of propositions him, asks him to buy her a drink, and he refuses, and she gets a little mean. I can't take credit for this. This is actually was a find by some very clever person working on the Sandman fan wiki, but Lushing Lou was based on a real person. I had no idea whatsoever. Th this is a person who is pulled almost exactly as she is, straight from the pages of Henry Mayhew's landmark study, uh, London Labor and the London Poor. It's this massive work of journalism from the 1840s. It's almost a work of like proto-sociology in its expansiveness. It's a really fascinating work. Uh, I read it in grad school and it's like filled with stories of all these sort of forgotten people of Victorian society. It's really fascinating reading and, you know, learning about some of the ways like people supported themselves. There's like rat hunters and people who search the sewers for trinkets and treasures to sell. And maybe weirdest of all, pure finders. Um, pure finders are people who like literally collected crap off the streets to sell to tanners um because it was used in the leather making process oh it was like yeah yeah yeah. okay 
that's one of the jobs you could have. Um, <laughs> anyway, so it's very interesting to read about. Uh, but Lushy Lou shows up here. I mean, it's a good, like, 40 years before her meeting with the Sandman. So, you know, I, this is a little bit of historical invention uh, on Neil Gaiman's part. But I want you to hear a little bit about how um, Mayhew describes her. He says... She was ladylike in appearance, although haggard. She was not dressed in flaring colors and meretricious tawdry. Uh, her clothes were neat and evidenced taste in their selection, although they were cheap. I spoke to her. She looked up without giving me an answer, appearing much dejected. And so, you know, Mayhew uh, guesses that she was actually just like hungover and she's mad because she was unable to obtain credit at the bar for some a little bit of a hair of the dog type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he offers her some money and she says, and it says, uh, a new light came into her eyes. She thanked me and calling the barmaid gave her orders with a smile of triumph. Her taste was sufficiently aristocratic to prefer pale brandy to the usual beverage dispensed in gin palaces. A drain of pale, as she termed it, invigorated her. Glass after glass was ordered till she had spent all the money I gave her. By this time, she was perfectly drunk, and I had been powerless to stop her. Pressing her hand to her forehead, she exclaimed, Oh, my poor head! I asked what was the matter with her, and for the first time she condescended, or felt in the humor, to speak to me. My heart's broken, she said. It has been broken since the 21st of May. I wish I was dead. I wish I was laid in my coffin. It won't be long. I'm doing it. I've just driven another nail in, and Lushing Lou, as they call me, will be no loss to society. Cheer up! Let's have a song! Why don't you sing? She cried, her mood having changed, as is frequently the case with habitual drunkards, and a symptom that often precedes delirium tremens. Sing, I tell you, she says. And then she starts to sing, and it's the very same song that she sings in this issue of The Sandman. Yeah, and... um, as she gets drunker, she opens up like a bit about herself and reveals that she had been seduced by a cousin in the army and the Mm. scandal uh, had ruined her. So she was left alone and on the streets and it sort of implies that she turned to a life of prostitution. Um, You know, Mayhew says he offers her like info on sort of a uh, refuge for women, but then this like singing Frenchman bursts into the bar and starts passing around a bottle of brandy and Lushing Lou is drawn away from Mayhew. Mm. So it's actually a really sad story. And though it's kind of like treated for laughs in this issue, um, I think it was probably, you know, much more appropriately and much more compassionately treated in the Netflix adaptation where they do give some of that, um, some of that backstory there. So I just thought that was a remarkable find. No, that's awesome, Sean. Thanks for finding that. Yeah, thanks, Sandman Fan Wiki. Whoever found that is, uh, hats off to him. Thanks so much for that, Sean. It was good to kind of get all that backstory in there. And uh, shout out to the Sandman Wiki. Ashley, you wanted to take us to the story that takes place in, I believe, the 1700s. And walking us through this mention we get of the wandering Jew... Ahaz Barush. Yes. So in this issue, Ahaz Barush is mentioned for the first time, again, in that first uh, iteration of the tavern. Uh, One of Hobbes' friends is saying, except the wandering Jew, Ahaz Barush, who denied our Lord. Yeah, fair enough, except everyone dies, I thought, except for maybe the wandering Jew. But why the hell should I? 
Um, and then the next time the Wandering Jew is brought up is when we see Joanna Constantine, and she says, they tell a tale in these parts of London that the devil and the Wandering Jew meet once a century in a tavern. And so this is the suspicion is that Hobbes uh, is a Hasbrouche and that he's just drinking with the devil at least once once every hundred years. Um, and I wanted to pick up on that because it's a really fascinating uh, piece of lore that actually uh, is dating back all the way prior to 1208. And then has had iterations throughout Western Europe and then was brought over uh, to the U.S. And then there were new iterations of the legend in the U.S. as well. And it's differed depending on what culture is telling it, but it's just a really fascinating legend. Um, it's featured as a poem in the uh, Reliques of Ancient English Poetry, Volume 2, by Thomas Percy. Uh, this legend isn't just found, like I said, in England, but all over Western Europe and the U.S. And the story of the Wandering Jew first appeared in print in early 17th century Amsterdam, which is possibly then where we get this reference here. It's becoming more established and um, we're getting new iterations of it. But I kind of wanted to go back to the source and how it kind of was inspired and then how it was kind of used throughout history. So it's frequently suggested that the legend is based on uh, Bible passages, Matthew 16, 28 and John 21 verses 20 through 23. So the Matthew passage is truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And then the John passage is a little bit longer. Uh, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? So there have been multiple iterations of this legend that the wandering Jew is Judas, um, that mm. he is Pilate, that he's a servant of Pilate, that he's actually the centurion mm. who you know stabs him in the end with his spear. The, the the role or the the actual person wandering changes from legend to legend, but the general idea of someone being kind of like cursed with immortality remains the same. So mm -hmm. it tells of this man who is who cursed Christ, this legend that usually we come back to, this man who cursed Christ on the way to the crucifixion and then was in turn cursed to wander till Christ's second coming. And there are a lot of interesting paintings and novels that depict um, the Wandering Jew as an influential character. The Wandering Jew has been used as a personification of the Jewish diaspora, so the scattering of the Jews throughout the world after the deconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 17 CE. And then uh, during the Jewish revolt against Rome, it is also, as I'm sure you've probably already guessed or put together, been made a vehicle for anti-Semitism, being featured in much of Nazi propaganda. 
A modern allegorical view claims that instead of the wandering Jew, um, that the wandering Jew actually personifies any individual who has made, who has been made to see the error of his or her wickedness. Um, one of the, I would say, more fleshed out iterations that we have in print of this legend comes from the Book of Legends told over again by Horace E. Scudder. And this was published in 1899. So again, well within like the time periods that we're covering within this issue. So it's, it's notable to me that this is the legend that kind of threads its way through both in theme and in reference. Um, this book also references St. George and the Dragon, William Tell, and the Flying Dutchman. So it like, covers a whole scope of legends and their mm. uh, cultures of origin. But the way that, that Scudder writes it is, When our Savior was passing out of Jerusalem to the place where he was made to be crucified, he was made to carry the heavy cross on his shoulders. Many people followed him, and others stood in the doorways of the houses as he passed, or looked out their windows. One of these who looked on was a shoemaker, a Hasbarish by name. He did not believe in Christ. He had been present when Pilate pronounced the sentence of his death, and, knowing that Christ would be dragged past his house, he ran home and called his household to see this person who, he said, had been deceiving the Jews. Erasbarish stood in the doorway, holding his little child on his arm. Presently, the crowd came by, and Jesus in the midst, bearing the cross. The load was heavy, and Jesus stood a moment, as if he would rest in the doorway. But Erasbarish, the Jew, willing to gain favor with the crowd, roughly bade him go forward. Jesus obeyed, but as he moved away, he turned and looked on the shoemaker and said, I shall at last rest, but thou shalt go on till the last day. Ahasbarish heard him, stirred by some uh, ill impulse. He knew not what. He set his child down and followed the crowd to the place of the crucifixion. There he stayed till the end. And when the people turned back, he turned back with them and went to his house but not to stay. He bade his wife and children farewell. Go on, a voice said to him, and on that day he began his wanderings. Years after he came back, but Jerusalem was a heap of ruins. The city had been destroyed, and he knew that his wife and children had long since been dead. Go on, he heard, and he wandered forth, begging his way from house to house, from town to town, from one country to another. He wandered from Judea to Greece, from Greece to Rome. He grew old, and his face was like leather, and his eyes were bright, and he never lost his vigor. He went through storms of the cold of winter. He endured the dry heat of summer, but no sickness overtook him. He joined armies that were going forth to battle, but death never came his way, though men fell by his side. He was never seen to laugh. Now and then some learned man would draw him into walk, talk, not knowing who he was, and would find him familiar with great events in history. It was not as if he had learned in these books. He talked as if he himself had been present. Then the learned man would shake his head and say to himself, Poor man, he is mad. And only after the wanderer left would the thought suddenly come, Why, that must have been the wandering Jew. Where is he now? No one knows. Wandering, weary, he moves from place to place. Sometimes he is driven off by people. He looks so uncanny. When war breaks out, he says to himself, perhaps now, the, at last, the end of the world is coming. 
But though wars have lasted hundreds of years, they cease at last, and still the wandering Jew goes on and on. And so you get various iterations of that story. Sometimes they're shorter, where it's just a guy was holding a door open for Jesus and got impatient with him and urged him to move faster. And Jesus turned back and says, you're going to live forever until I come back. Um, You've got some in the U.S. where... He is uh, noted for being being in like New York City as a rabbi and is just sort of talking to people, giving them his shared wisdom from his world travels, and then suddenly just kind of mysteriously disappearing into the night. Um, so you get all of these different sort of depictions of him throughout the world, but specifically notably in Western Europe and then in the U.S. And in the legend continues. Um, And so it's just interesting to me that it's pervasive both in sort of like secular Christianity and in Jewish tradition, that there is this figure that is kind of debated about as far as what his role is and whether he's been cursed or whether he is here to bring wisdom. And so we're just to benefit from his experience. But um, like I said, he's Mm. depicted all through literature. And uh, he'd been used in a lot of different ads and such. So just an interesting figure that is referenced here. And I find it kind of funny that that Hobbes is being uh, mistaken for somebody that is actually meant to be really worldly and wise. (laughs) Yeah, I was like scrolling through the Wikipedia as you were talking. And it's a very long Wikipedia article. Yeah. There's so much in there. It's crazy. He's been around for a long time. So you're going to get a long article. He's like writing his own Wikipedia. (laughs) That's how he's bringing his knowledge to the world now. He's just like a great (laughs) Wikipedia editor. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, with that, we are going to slide over to our favorite panel and favorite non-Sandman character. So, Sean, you're up first with the favorite panel. All right. Well, I am going to stick to my promise to not sneak in any additional panels when I go first. And I'm landing solidly on page two of the issue page two second panel uh i it's this is the one with uh jeffrey chaucer talking with his friend edmund and edmund is lecturing him on how great pierce plowman is and how people (laughs) don't want to read filthy tales in rhyme about pilgrims and chaucer just looks so bored and over it i love it (laughs) Um, I love that expression. It's just uh, a great expression, you know, familiar to anyone who's been in a writing class. Like, someone is not going to enjoy having their work critiqued. And this perfectly encapsulates uh, that reaction. And I also really love that Dream is in the background, just kind of noticing Chaucer. Just like, all right, bro, I see you there, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I love it. Great panel. Excellent. Thanks, Sean. So my panel is going to be on page 15, bottom right. Uh, This is when Hobbes shows up as a drunkard. This is right before then. And I just love Morpheus's uh, fit um, Mm. in that uh, particular uh, scene. 
Uh, I love the shot of him there. I love his little finger up like that. I love the hat. I love the ascot. I love the frilly uh, bows around the arms. Like I just think he just looks uh, looks incredible in that particular panel. So that is my panel for this week. And he's got a pipe. Uh, he's smoking a pipe. Yeah. Who knew? I know. He just looks so cool. He's a fancy lad. He's a fancy <laughs> lad. Uh, Ashley, how about you? I think my favorite panel is on... Uh, page nine it's when you have uh morpheus walking up to the tavern and he's on the road and he's like dropping the rose and you see like the little peasant carrying his bundle ah yes to the to the right of him um it's just such a beautifully detailed panel and i love the romanticism of him sort of carelessly dropping the rose and the smoke billing through the the chimney i just i just think it's a really um a really gorgeous scene with so much detail to it like the more i look at it the more i find i didn't even notice the duck the last time um <laughs> and it just it, it brings me to sean what you were saying about the penciling and setting the stage and and giving suggestion and now i think that's making me look at this anew and appreciate it more yeah it's great i love like the sort of like autumn-looking leaves in the air mm-hmm. and all that. Yes, it's very very nicely depicted, very nicely drawn. The guy from the We Should uh, in- Improve Society somewhat <laughs> means <Yes>. is there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ashley, we come right back around to you. Who's your character this time? Ooh, this is a hard one because there are so many really hilarious quotable moments, but I think the person I'm actually going to pick is death uh just because she's so stately uh as mm, she absolutely. sort of interacts with this uh mortal who is so besmirching her gift and um just how she carries herself uh i just think is um it's an interesting depiction of death that we don't see you know normally we get this like really carefree um, I mean, serious about her her role, but generally, death is carefree, upbeat, positive. Here, she's just so courtly, so stately, um, yes. and like self contained, self assured. I just I I like seeing um, how dynamic her actual character is in this issue. Yeah, yeah my, I really love the panel. I was say I really love the panel with her on page four. <laughs> yeah, just like she just looks great there. Yeah. Yeah, what are you going to say, Sean? Uh, yeah, I was going to say my my alternate choice for panel is that one of her holding the cup and sort of Same. smiling yeah. enigmatically. Yes. It's such a yep. great expression. It is. Yeah, that That's was going to the... be my backup as well. I like if I if I could cosplay this and know that someone would know what I'm cosplaying as, mm. I would love to do this cosplay. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to go a bit a bit weird here. My favorite character is going to be Time. That is what I am selecting for this week's issue. I thought time as a character plays such an important role in producing, as Sean said, kind of one of like the early great issues that we get out of what is a wonderful run of comics. Uh, But their ability to jump us through 600 years really puts a lot of work into what time has to do for us and just... It is such a reminder sometimes when you're kind of in your day to day, how much happens over a hundred years when you're seeing it in this one snapshot like this. And it would really be 
you know, what you're able to pull out of it, you know, what Ashley pulled out of it, especially, you know, thinking about the great Occidental schism, but just all the little things in there that you could just do these like deep dives, like a day, you know, a single day, every 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and look at it and just see how much has changed using that as a reference point. So I'm going to pick time as my character. Nice. Sean? Uh, I got to give it to Lady Joanna. All right. You know, it's her very first appearance, and it just seems like so obvious when you think about it. Like, of course, John Constantine would come from a long line of like morally dubious characters with an interest <laughs> in the supernatural. It's like one of those characters who just like immediately fits and is immediately complete and whole in their presentation. Um, mm. And I also love... You know, those little Neil Gaiman moments where he scatters some seeds of potential future stories, like just in case he wants to use them at some point. You know, this is an actual technique that he does, but it's so great. I'm thinking of like the the old ghosts that Lady Joanna needs to uh, confront. Uh, we don't know yeah. what those are. Or the mention of Jack Constantine who, you know, it sounds like got killed by vampires. Like, what an interesting story that would be. And Hobb is there also. Um, and then, of course, the one that Neil did end up using, the task Joanna Constantine undertakes for Dream, uh, which we'll learn about in an important later issue. Yes, we will. So in this issue, like I mentioned, it's really considered one of those formidable ones that really set the Sandman apart in these first, you know, we're just 15 issues into to the run here. So barely even a half, you know, barely even a year's worth of material. And we get this wonderful movement through time. And I think all three of us, you know, really vibed a lot with this and found different sections of it that we wanted to pull out. Sean took us on tangents of divergence of tangents on, you know, touching on all sorts of, of different things from, you know, William Shakespeare, looking at Kent Marlowe, you know, looking at all the different bits and pieces, talking about Jeffrey Chaucer, really showing us that he does have a degree in English literature in case any of us were confused on that. And then Ashley batting cleanup, reminding us at her heart, she is a theologian and she is going to talk to us about the wandering Jew and the great Austenism of 1378, just to make sure that you get that treatment here on the Sandman Unlocked, because that's what we do here. And then for me, I learned two really important things. I learned what blueberry in tomato soup means and i also <laughs> learned thanks to ashley what hair of the dog means and if you didn't know now you know it means drinking what you drunk to help you get unhung over and with that thanks for listening to this week's episode of the sandman unlocked and remember never trust the storyteller only trust the story Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere 
at ltheadtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.